0: Welcome to First Do No Harm with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician, Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Please be advised that this show may not be appropriate for children under 13. Hello and welcome back to First, Do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I'm Dr. Mark Rollo. Medical students have graduated from Harvard Medical School since 1788, just a year after the signing of the United States Constitution. 233 years later, the class of 2021 graduated from Harvard Medical School. Among these graduates is Dr. James Paul Agolia, whom I recently had the privilege of interviewing regarding his essay for his medical ethics class at Harvard. The subject matter for the essay is the hot topic of physician-assisted suicide. Today, I will play part one of that interview. Let us first, as always, begin with prayer. For as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops, only with prayer, prayer that storms the heavens for justice and mercy, prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls, will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced by the culture of life. O God, we pray that young men and women of conscience will increasingly fill the ranks of the medical profession. Help them to serve the suffering and to never serve the false gods of fame and fortune. Help them to avoid the polar opposite pressures of serving the state or serving radical autonomy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before presenting part one of my interview with Dr. James Paul Agolia, I would like to read some excerpts from his essay regarding assisted suicide, which deals with the notion of autonomy. I do so while taking some liberties of slight editing and the omission of references made by Dr. Agolia. The original essay can be provided to individuals if desired. Subject to the approval of Dr. Agolia. On autonomy, here is what was written by Dr. Agolia. One major argument for the moral permissibility of physician assisted suicide is based on patient autonomy. Autonomy is widely accepted as a basic principle of medical ethics. The so called right to die by assisted suicide has been viewed by some as. The triumph of autonomy, which in bioethics has finally given the patient complete ability to rule over one's life. It is argued, continues Dr. Agolia, that if a terminal patient anticipating intolerable suffering and desiring control over the manner of his or her death asks a physician for a lethal drug to hasten his or her death, then the physician should provide it as a way of respecting the patient's autonomous choice. It is believed by some that physicians should also respect the patient's desire to avoid the loss of autonomy at the end of life. This is actually a common sentiment. In 2019, for example, 86.7% of patients who died by assisted suicide in Oregon were concerned about loss of autonomy at the end of life. In sum, the argument from a patient's autonomy perspective states that if a patient freely chooses assisted suicide, prescribing assisted suicide to the patient is morally permissible because patients have the right to make their own decisions about the way they wish to die. The problem with this argument, explains Dr. Agolio is that personal autonomy is not unlimited. This is acknowledged even by those who find assisted suicide morally permissible. Autonomy is a fundamental ethical principle, but it is not the only one, and other principles must always be taken into account, especially when the consequences could result in the patient's death. Physicians should not merely provide whatever services the patient wants, Rather, they should take into account the preferences of the patient while recommending a course of action that the physician believes is in the patient's best interest. In some circumstances, acting in the patient's best interest might mean refusing to do something that the patient wants, such as performing a much-desired but unnecessary operation, or prescribing a much-desired medication for which the potential harms outweigh the potential benefits. In cases of suicidal ideation, a physician usually does not agree with a patient's autonomous wish to harm himself as it runs counter to the patient's life and well-being. If a patient requests physician-assisted suicide, the physician should listen to the patient's concerns about end-of-life and explain how assisted suicide is diametrically opposed to the patient's life and well-being, even in the context of terminal illness. Dr. Agolia elaborates that some state that the prohibition against doctors killing patients should be abandoned in favor of prohibition against doctors killing patients without consent. This reasoning effectively states that an action that is traditionally considered to be morally wrong, killing patients, might be right, as long as a doctor acts according to the patient's autonomous choice. But respect for patient autonomy is one principle among others, not the sole standard by which we should judge all actions. Another action traditionally considered to be morally wrong is for physicians to have a sexual relationship with patients. Would a patient's autonomous consent to a sexual relationship, make it morally permissible? Is the patient's action truly autonomous? Because it affects the patient's loved ones. It affects the physician who must possibly violate his conscience by providing a prescription. And this may affect the choice of other patients who may feel pressured or believe that they somehow had a duty to die. These are just some of the issues that were touched upon during my interview with Dr. Agolia, the first part of which I will now play. Joining me now is James Agolia. Dr. Agolia recently graduated from Harvard Medical School and will be starting a general surgery residency at Stanford University Medical Center coming up very soon at the end of June. Dr. Agolia grew up on Long Island, New York, as the oldest of three children in a Catholic family. He graduated from Chaminade High School, a Catholic all-boys high school run by the Marianist Order. He graduated in 2012. And from there he moved on to Princeton University and graduated in 2016. He also lived... uh, in New York City for a time. While he was in New York City, he was an active member of the Frassati Fellowship, which is a Catholic organization of youth dedicated to following the example of blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati. He was also a member of the Catholic student organization at Harvard Medical School. He is married and lives with his wife in California. So, welcome James.
1: Thanks so much, Dr. Roll. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I was particularly struck by the fact that you're you grew up on the East Coast and you went to school on the East Coast, uh, but you're married and um, are now in California. So you just recently graduated. So this has been uh, quite a couple of weeks for you, I imagine.
1: Oh yeah, it's been a whirlwind tour, that's for sure. Uh, the thing is, my when my wife and I were trying to decide where I should apply for residency. Um, her family has been living out here, and she's been away from her family for a long time, so we decided that it'd be best to move back to the West Coast.
0: Mm-hmm. So you were together on the um, East Coast. Did you both live in the in the Boston area?
1: After We both went to Princeton, and after we graduated, I went to Harvard, and uh, my wife Gabriella got a job in New York City. Okay. Um. So we were doing the long-distance relationship for a while, and then between my third and fourth year of medical school, I was uh, down in New York City doing some research, Mm -hmm. And it kind of continued into the pandemic when all the classes became virtual and stuff.
0: Oh, I see. I see. So for the last part of, uh, or for a significant part of medical school, you were actually living in New York City?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Pretty much for, not for the entire time, but pretty much for a lot of my fourth year I was in New York City.
0: Wow, that's amazing, because that's that's a time where you're typically doing uh, clerkships and and different kinds of... uh, Rotations. So how did that uh, work out virtually?
1: Yeah, it's a little weird at Harvard because they do a lot of the clerkships and rotations in the second year. And then sort of the advanced rotations you tend to do in your third and fourth year. So I had already done a lot of them in mm-hmm. my third year. And then I had done a few more of them uh, in the summer of my fourth year. I, I, spent, I went back up to Boston for a time and did some more rotations. But we, we kind of got into the clinic a little earlier.
0: Well, I should tell uh, listeners that I uh, never met you before in person. We, uh, we met uh, through email, like a lot of people meet these days. And uh, actually, <clears throat> you reached out to uh, Massachusetts Citizens for Life, and I'm a board member of that organization. And I was really very pleased that you did, and that you had uh, written an a, a essay on physician-assisted suicide, and you wanted to share that uh, widely and not just have it be a, a classroom experience. So I thought that was terrific, especially, you know, coming from Harvard, a secular institution, and I think probably most uh, medical schools are somewhat leaning toward being in favor of physician-assisted suicide, which I find uh, kind of sad, but I'm not really on the inside, so I'm really uh, interested to hear your reflections on, on uh, where things are at uh, a uh, school like uh, Harvard, especially regarding uh, ethical uh, issues. But before we get there and talk about that essay and sort of where you're coming from on the whole issue of physician-assisted suicide, tell me um, what it was like growing up in a Catholic home on Long Island.
1: I mean, it was great. My mom and dad and my uh, two younger sisters grew up together on Long Island, and it was really nice having a home where I got formed in the Catholic faith.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: When uh, my parents set a great example by going to Mass and going to the sacraments uh, often, and I'm very grateful for that. Not everybody gets that, and uh, I I I really got a a good childhood that way.
0: Yeah, well, that's fantastic. That's sort of my experience, too. I grew up in a Catholic home, and my... Both parents uh, practiced their faith um, very seriously. Both were very uh, pro-life, uh, so uh, we probably had similar experiences. Now, Shamanad High School, I didn't know anything about that. I looked up uh, online about it, but tell me what led to your uh, going there and what your experience was like at Shamanad uh, High School.
1: Um, I really love Chaminade. It's it's a great place. Uh, the Marianist Order, I think, are maybe not so well-known for most people, but their vocation is dedicated to education and um, obviously a Mary. Uh, I believe they, they were founded um, in France and then they came over here. They wear black suits, black ties. Uh, mm-hmm. Amazing order. Uh, they're just very, very dedicated to, in our case, educating young men mm-hmm. at Chaminade. It's grown into a pretty a decent-sized school. My graduating class was around 400 kids. Wow, wow. Um, and it's... I'm Long out has a pretty good reputation. It's known to be, like, very good academically, but I think they also do a great job of, of making sure that, that our Catholic faith is at the center of the education. Yeah, way.
0: that's great. Yeah, often these days, I think uh, some of the Catholic high schools have sort of trended away from um, the central mission of passing on the uh, faith. So then you... Um, made a kind of a dramatic switch from a, a Catholic high school to a very secular university, Princeton. Mm-hmm. What, what was that uh, experience like, going from a Catholic high school and a Catholic family to uh, Princeton University?
1: It's very different. It's, it's, it's for sure a very different environment. You go from a place where every aspect of of the faith is all around you all the time just on you know, pushers on the wall you you pray before every class mm-hmm. you have the opportunity to go to uh prayer services for uh lunch um to a place where if you want to be involved in the catholic faith you can and there's a great catholic ministry at princeton uh, called good. the aquinas institute but it's not mandatory it's not there around you. you really have to go seek it out right um you can get a little lost i think in college i didn't lose my faith um but i did not put it first priority
0: uh, mm-hmm. i continued
1: going to mass i on sundays i um continued being involved a little bit with the aquinas institute but i got busy with other stuff and um well i didn't give my faith the time that it deserved so yeah i think that's that's what i regret about it
0: well i think it's it's uh admirable from my point of view that you that you actually stuck with a lot of people uh end up uh in college away from home and they lose their faith in fact i went to um Holy Cross College in the uh, in the 1960s, late 60s and early 70s, and uh, even though it a, was a Catholic institution, and still is. It has become more and more secularized. You know, I found my own faith uh, challenged there, and a lot of people actually lost their faith there, unfortunately. So I, I, uh, fortunately for me, um, hung on, and uh, I'm glad to hear you did. As well, did you did you experience any uh, hostility about your Catholic faith while you were there?
1: No, I really don't think so, to be honest, um, or uh, maybe I just had my head in the sand so much that I didn't notice it. But yeah, no, I th- I don't think I experienced hostility to the Catholic faith at Princeton. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was it was pretty good in that way.
0: Yeah, well, that's good. At what point did you participate in the uh, uh, forsati Fellowship?
1: My wife moved down to New York City after graduation to to work there. Yeah, and she started getting involved with them first,, um, and she was particularly involved with working in a uh, in a shelter uh, that was run by the Franciscan fires, the renewal of the Bronx. and they the connection was through this first fellowship, which is really an incredible, incredible organization for Catholic youth. I think their mission is really for for kind of young adults aged twenty to thirty nine or so living in mm-hmm. the city, young professionals. And trying to connect everybody together, build some fellowship, build some uh, community, prayer life, uh, going to adoration and holy hours, mm-hmm. and retreats, um, but also to get people outside of the city um, to go on hikes and, and to get out into the into the woods and get some fresh air. And um, and I think that's sort of following the mission of the person that they're named after, Blessed Pierre Giorgio Versati, mm-hmm. who was a young guy growing up in Italy who was very uh, attached to the sacraments and. Um, was a great leader within his own uh, community of friends, trying to get people out into the, into, on hikes and stuff, but always keeping Christ at the center. So, uh, it's it's a pretty awesome organization. They do a lot of great stuff.
0: Yeah, well that's that's great. So so it was actually your wife who um, who uh, found this originally.
1: Oh yeah, she found it first. Yep.
0: Had you said that you met at Princeton or?
1: or? We did. Yeah, we met when uh, in early on in Princeton. We did it for quite a few years before. We got married a couple of years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. Then you moved on from Princeton to uh, Harvard. What was that whole experience like uh, going from Princeton to Harvard was it the same kind of environment? Did you see much um, difference in the uh, school environment?
1: Well, I think it's it's yeah, I think there is a difference. Um, and a lot of that is because of you know what the, the medical profession and people who are interested in going to the medical profession are focused on mm-hmm. um you know i think at princeton if if you didn't want to be involved in uh debates about care at the end of life or mm. be, or uh issues at the beginning of life then you, you know you you could pretty much avoid that but in a uh, medical school that's you can't really avoid that it, it happens um it's part of the curriculum it's it's part of what you're going to see so that's when i think a lot of the some of the issues that we see that are so contentious in society today sort of came to the fore for me while i was in medical school
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess that led to your writing this um, this uh, essay about physician assisted suicide. Can you, what kind of uh, uh, sparked you to uh, choose that as a topic?
1: We had a, a choice of a number of different things that we could do for this one particular class as a final paper or final project, and mm-hmm. one of them was centered on writing an essay for consideration for this. Uh, uh, it's called the Beecher Prize for in, in Ethics, uh, for the best ethics-related essay. And I figured, you know, I was interested in this type of stuff, and I had gotten interested in it by doing a uh, a program on uh, medical ethics, won by this institute called the Witherspoon Institute of Princeton, um, where they try to focus on you know, classical medical ethics and continue the medical school. And I, I just thought that uh, one of my friends had said, you know, physician-assisted suicide is the next battle for um, yeah. Catholic... Uh, doctors and yep. uh, I would agree with that. I think it's it's probably the one of the preeminent issues of the day, uh, yes. along with abortion and, and other things. But it's it's coming up in in state legislatures across the U.S. So exactly. I think it's pretty important.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I've uh, spoken about that uh, in previous um, uh, shows, and um, I liken it to uh, Roe v. Wade, and um, it's it's the Roe v. Wade of our time because uh, early on. Abortion became legal in places like New York State and and California, but it wasn't uh, legal uh, nationally until the Supreme Court decision in 1973. So it only took about five or six years to become legal in a few states and then legal across the country. The one thing I find uh, kind of encouraging is that the first state to adopt assisted suicide was uh, Oregon in in 1997 and here we are you know uh, 25 years later or so and it still is legal only in about uh, 10 or 11 states Uh, so we're doing a lot better fighting this off than we did the the whole abortion issue. When you selected this as a topic you had to present this um, in your uh, class is that right?
1: Yes. So in addition to writing the essay, you would also have to give a short PowerPoint presentation to your classmates um, at the end of the class. Mm -hmm.
0: So how did how did that go over?
1: This was kind of a small group of classmates. Um, The class is divided into kind of small groups, so maybe 10 to 15 Mm -hmm. uh, people. And we had had some discussions about some other related ethical issues previously. So I, I, I think I kind of knew where people stood. Yeah. Before giving the presentation, which is that you know, in general, I think and I think this is generally true for a lot of young physicians in training is you know you' you want to respect patient autonomy if the patient mm-hmm. uh, wants to wants to choose something, wants something about their care, you want to respect, and I think that's pretty admirable because you, you know there's a lot of crimes that we've seen that when you go against the patient's autonomy, yeah. and we definitely don't want to go that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that swing is maybe. It's just not a complete ethic, right? It, it misses some things about the doctor-patient relationship that are pretty unique. And I, I just don't think it tells the full story. Right. Uh, so I, I think the reception to the talk, and I, was, I basically made some arguments against some common arguments uh, that physician-assisted suicide proponents make, mm-hmm. um, which are that, uh, you know, physician-assisted suicide is respecting patient autonomy, what people want, mm-hmm. you're not abandoning the patients when they're near the end of life. And you don't want to have the patient be a burden on their family members, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, which many people are concerned about. So I tried to address some of those things and I think people were receptive to it, but didn't necessarily agree for the most part. And those that did agree, I think would probably prefer to remain silent. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> so uh, I was
0: just going to ask you, uh, did you have anybody that, uh, that agreed with you?
1: I think that there were at least one or two, but I, I think... I think it's hard for people to talk about that type of thing. Yeah,
0: Um, yeah. It it, it is a shame, but it's true that that people, when there's something controversial going on, um, like to, uh, you know, remain silent. And uh, I'm glad that you didn't. You you talked about autonomy. And uh, this idea of whatever the patient wants goes. And I have felt in my own practice for more than 35 years that toward the end of my practice I retired a year ago you get to feeling sort of like a vending machine and that you were supposed to dispense whatever the um, whatever the patient wanted but you, you i like the way you uh, pushed back on that idea um, you want to say a little bit about that
1: well I, I just think that autonomy it's a very restrictive thing to me and i think most people would agree that you know autonomy means that you let the person decide or mm-hmm. choose the options that they want before them. You don't restrict those options to something less than what they would want, and you, and you try to go along with their right to sort of determine themselves and what they would want to be and do. But it's not, you know, in, in Catholic ethics, we don't really talk about autonomy so much as freedom, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a different thing, because we know as Catholics that we can't truly be free unless we are with God. Mm -hmm. And the choices that we want to make for ourselves, we can make them, but they don't actually make us free. In fact, they would just enslave us. And, you know, the secular ethics, I think, misses that point. Right. And I think it's similar for a doctor-patient relationship. I don't have have any experience with this, but I'd love to hear your experience with this, Dr. Rillo, over 35 years of sometimes what patients choose, they might just, you know, have it wrong. They don't have the experience that
0: you have. Exactly, and, and to me, that's, that's why people come to a doctor. They want some guidance. Uh, we want to give them not just freedom with a, as a blank check, but we want to have them be free to do the right thing. We as physicians are there to help them do the right thing because, after all, they're coming to us for our guidance and our experience, it's, it's really a, a form of abandonment just to give them what they want uh, without trying to, uh, to guide them in some way. This concludes Part 1 of my conversation with Dr. James Agolia. Regarding the notion of human autonomy, St. John Paul II, in his encyclicals Veritatus Splendor and Evangelium Vitae, stressed that human freedom of choice... Our legitimate autonomy must be guided, if we are to exercise it rightly, by truth. Human freedom and autonomy are not unlimited, nor creative of the moral order. Human freedom is exercised rightly, and in a way conducive to human fulfillment or perfection, only when guided by truth. When human autonomy is conceived... As the creator and arbiter of good and evil, of right and wrong, we are no longer able to guide our choices by truth, but only by subjective and changing human opinions, and human autonomy so conceived gives birth to the culture of death. In short, human autonomy, human freedom of choice, is limited. It is valued precisely because we can exercise it with a view to our flourishing or fulfillment as persons living in communion with others. Until next time, remember, we should always treat life with care and respect. And at the very least, we should first do no harm. Thank you for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rolo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrollo 978 at gmail.com. That's M-A-R-K-R-O-L-L-O 978 at gmail.com. Thank you. And until next week, remember, first do no harm.